Matthew 2, verses 1 to 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew 2, verses 7 to 12. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Last winter, I was staying at someone's place, and I was there by myself, and I arrived at night. And I wanted to go to the bathroom to brush my teeth. So when I went into the bathroom, I felt around for the light switch that I assumed would be on the wall next to the door, and it was not there. So I went to the other wall behind the door, couldn't find the light switch. And usually light switches are standardized that I assume it wouldn't be at foot level. And so I felt my way around the whole room. And then I started to wonder if maybe they had above the sink, maybe a pull down or something. So in the dark, I was swattering around and I never found it. So it's a funny kind of thing that you need the light switch to turn the light on. But with it being dark, you can't find the light switch. If I had gotten there during the day or if the lights were on, I would know where the light switch was. So even if I was in the dark, I would have a general idea of where to go. Um, but I had no idea where to go, and there I was, brushing my teeth in the dark. So, uh, the Christmas story, where people are searching, uh, searching for something that human beings want, but feels impossible to find. Um, the Christmas story is, is a story about people searching for God, And it's an instinct many of us have to want to know whether or not there's a creator, whether or not the one who oversees the universe and holds life in his hands exists. So some people have a natural impulse to seek after God. Is there something to that? Not everybody does, though. But but people still have those same longings that even if it doesn't make sense to search for God, there's a searching for something. Is there the possibility of happiness? Is there meaning? in my existence. 
Uh, is there some purpose to the world? And so, of course, the, the answer of the Bible is all of those searches, if you go far enough, is a searching for God. Um, but even if you're not wanting to, to think of it in religious language, most people are looking for something. We're longing for something, and yet we're all having difficulty, feeling at times like we're going around in the dark, unable to even just find uh, a place where, where the answers can be found. Uh, in the Christmas story with the birth of Jesus, we're told that a new possibility has been presented. One of the reasons that there's supposed to be so much joy is now we have a place to go to say, if you're looking for light, if you're looking for life, if you're looking for joy, whatever it is you're longing for, it's not that all of life's answers are quickly given to you, but you now know the place that if you take hold of this, you will find that your searching takes on a different direction. The theme of seeking, the theme of searching in this passage in the, more, in the two scripture readings we just heard is one of the famous stories of the Jesus' uh, birth narratives of these wise men from the East. They come seeking, they come searching, they come with questions. But they stir a search, so even Herod in verse 8 says to go search diligently for this child. Um, in the story, there's a variety of people that become very interested in this news and how it will be realized. So this morning, I want to consider that theme, that idea that, uh, that Christmas somehow is about providing something for people who are seeking and that there's the possibility that we could find something that will satisfy us. And so I want to look at four different individuals or parties in this passage and the nature of their seeking. I'm going to begin with the wise men. Uh, they're the focus of this story. So what we know about them, they're described in verse 2 as being wise men from the east who come to Jerusalem. And we don't really know where they're coming from. For a long time, it was assumed Persia, modern-day Iran. Some think it might be from modern-day Jordan. All we know is that they are um, Gentiles. They are non-Jews who uh, have been observing things that uh, was uh, important enough to them that they go on this long journey. And they show up, and, and there's a variety of things that they're doing, the kinds of things that we do, uh, where they're observing and they're reflecting and they're trying to figure out, it leads them in their searching to the general area. They show up in Jerusalem. It makes sense. They're looking for the king of the Jews. Uh, and that's where the kings of the Jews had been. Um, so they got to the general area, but that is not where the person they're looking for was born. So in verse 2, it says, they saw his star when it had, had risen, when it rose, and they came to worship him. So, so they're these astrologer-astronomer types, a little bit different from, uh, from how we think today. And so maybe you could think in a scientific mindset, there are people like uh, the sailors that you'll still look at the North Star, that just look up and they're noticing something in the skies that seems to be directing them to a location. But they would have had a mystical aspect to it. So they would have been astrology types of thinking that maybe the skies were sending messages. And so, so they're observing. They're trying to wisely look at the world and make sense of it. Um, they're also trying to make sense of their experience. In verse 12, they're warned in a dream. So, so the heavens are alive uh, within their minds. They're, they're longing for something that fills them with questions. And so they are questioners. They do what we do. When we observe, when we're trying to make sense of things, we want answers. And so they come with a question. Verse 2, where is he who has been born 
king of the Jews. Uh, they believe that there is a king of the Jews. They believe they're in the right general location, but that's as far as they can get to that general sense of we've gotten this far and now we need help. We don't know how to find him. And it's interesting in the way Matthew tells the story about the scriptures being fulfilled, history being fulfilled, the role of these Gentiles, of the nations coming to inquire, is part of the story to say that from even from the days of, of the time of Abraham, one day everyone around the world will come and they will search out and seek in this place what they're ultimately looking for. The Christmas story says it's starting to be fulfilled. And so Matthew ends his gospel, Jesus' last words, sending his disciples out, go make disciples of all nations. But he begins the gospel saying the sign that the time of fulfillment has come is the nations are understanding it's time to start coming to this place. And so the wise men are a picture of these nations that don't know God, but but belong to God's creation. They have longings, and now they're starting to search out something more specific, but there's a limit to what they could find, a limit to what they can do. Uh, and so magi, uh, as they're called in uh, the sort of, it's, more, uh, it's a term sometimes in English Bibles that's closer to the Greek word. Uh, our passage calls them wise men. They're not necessarily pictured as positive figures in the Bible, although here they play this very positive role, these observers, these seekers who come. But you read throughout the Bible, and the, sometimes uh, these wise magician types are seen negatively as sorcerer types that need to be avoided. But even in their best, there's an insufficiency to their wisdom, to their ability. So you see it, for example, in the story of Joseph back in Genesis, uh, another place where there are dreams and there are revelations, Pharaoh has these dreams. And he has a court of wise men and magicians, but nobody could make sense of what Pharaoh is thinking. But Joseph, a descendant of Jacob, who comes out of this land in, the, in this complicated story, um, not because he is taking courses in Freudian analysis, it's not that he's an expert in interpreting dreams, but because the dream is connected to something that only God can uh, give insight to because it's announcing what's about to happen. Because Joseph knows God, his place there um, shows that he is far better than the wise men surrounding Pharaoh. And so he winds up being second in charge because of the insufficiency of the wisdom of the council that was surrounding Pharaoh. And then in the same location in Egypt, in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we find again, Pharaoh is surrounded with these magicians, but this time, instead of uh, there being a positive uh, revelation, there's a conflict. So you have Moses who is sent by God as a messenger for God with a message, but Moses says, why would he listen to me? At the end of the day, the book of Exodus is about a conflict between God and Pharaoh, but nobody sees God, they're seeing Moses. And so God says, well, I will show signs through you so that they will know that uh, you've been sent. And so he shows up and he says, let my people go. And here's a sign, and he throws down his staff and it turns into a snake. And there are these magicians in the court of Pharaoh who say, we could explain it. And then Moses uh, turns the Nile, the waters into blood, and the magicians say, we understand how he did that, but let us show you. And then he summons frogs, and then the magicians say, we can do this. Uh, but then it, 
the story unfolds where it gets bigger and bigger until all of a sudden the magicians, the wise men, they can't do anything. They can't explain anything. But the interesting thing in the way the story is being told is at that point, their hearts are starting to harden. They start, they stop believing the messenger because they think there's an explanation. And then it gets to a point where they can't explain. But at that point, they're blinded until the great power of God is revealed and they're shown completely uh, unable to do anything about it. And so the, the magicians are unable there. The last example in the Bible, the book of Daniel. Uh, so Daniel and his friends are taken captivity to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 has these troubling dreams, and he is becoming a bit of a skeptic. He has all these wise men around him that interpret dreams, but he's starting to get the impression maybe because the dreams are about future fulfillment, they could tell him anything that they think and he won't know. So he says, if you're that wise, don't simply tell me what my dreams mean, but tell me what my dreams are. That's impossible. Who could do that? And so uh, Daniel and his friends who have been trained in these institutions, who have the same training, the same ability, um, now the king of Babylon says, enough with these wise men. They're a bunch of frauds. Kill them all. So Daniel and his friends decide to seek God fervently in prayer not in a dream, but in a vision, God makes known to them what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and what it means. And so he goes back, uh, Daniel, who shows he's not like the wise men. He's not like the magi or the magicians, but actually there's a God who uh, is over all and reveals things. And Nebuchadnezzar is completely overwhelmed. It's remarkable. He says, this is the God of gods. There is somebody greater than me, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, an interesting figure who saw the, the limitations of his counsel of the human wise men and the magicians. And now we have another story where these magi, these wise men, they come and they're observing and they're seeing and they're making sense of things, but, but it's not enough. They know that there is a king of the Jews. They know it's in this kingdom, but they don't know who it is or where to find him. And, and so uh, as, as we look at this, we think about uh, how the world is ordered such that there's so much we could figure out, not just about how things work, but, but even that things must mean something. And uh, yet uh, we find that there's a limitation on, on, on the kinds of questions we have. What will really bring ultimate purpose? What really happens? after we die, we're all left limited, um, needing something more. And it's interesting as we're looking at this passage where, where God uses things like dreams and, and how things work together. Uh, does this happen today? Well, one place that you hear reports on this is in Muslim countries. It's interesting in the last 20 or 30 years as re uh, religious extremism has been on the rise in many uh, Muslim dominated countries, especially in the Middle East and in the Arabic uh, lands where, where um, non-Muslims were driven out, including non-indigenous missionaries. It's illegal to speak of the gospel. You cannot convert. There are stories after stories of um, Muslim individuals who have no interest in conversion who are having dreams where Jesus appears to them. And, and, and those dreams, uh, they take as a revelation of God that then uh, if, if, the, if the rulers of the nation say, nobody here could be a witness to God, somehow God is still providing that kind of witness. 
I know an individual who grew up in the United States. He grew up in a Jewish family, was non-religious, um, and he got into sort of the party lifestyle. And when I say into it, his whole life was characterized by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Quite successful. He was hanging out with famous rock musicians. He was really uh, thriving in that. And one day he had a vision where Jesus appeared to him. Now, part of the backstory of that vision was he was on drugs. So he sees Jesus and uh, maybe the friends with him saw Barney on roller skates, you know, going around blowing bubbles and uh, lots of people were seeing lots of things. He is absolutely convinced this was not a hallucination. Jesus appeared to him. His friends are arguing this, this was a hallucination. To me, that's the more reasonable explanation. He took drugs, he saw Jesus, you could explain that. He is so convinced that this was the most real thing he ever experienced, that this was about 20 or 30 years ago, um, radically changed his life, off drugs, off that lifestyle, and he passed away a couple of years ago. Until he died, his life was radically changed. He is absolutely convinced that the most real thing that happened in his life was in this desperate moment, Jesus appeared to him. So there are these stories where, where God is at work in these ways that we don't always understand and can't always explain. Um, but there's an insufficiency. We need more than just observation, questions, and experiences. So that leads us into the second group of seekers in this passage, which are the chief priests and the scribes. So the chief priests and the scribes actually have what the wise men don't have. Uh, theological terms we use, the wise men had general revelation. They have the world as God made it, as a witness to him. But they didn't have what we call special revelation, the very words of God himself. And so the scribes and the chief priests had the Bible. They had the writings of the prophets. And it clues us into the, to the sense that, that Jesus arriving was doing something new, but not something out of the blue. The scriptures that were written, the, the history of what God had done leading up to this period had led the people who had the Bible to, to be in a period of expectancy. We're watching, we're looking for what God is gonna do next. And so what, what, the, uh, what the wise men did not have, which is to find the specific location of the, the king of the Jews, this chief priest and the scribes had, so in verses four to six, uh, Herod brings them together because he knows that they must have the answer to the question where the king of the Jews would be born. In assembling the chief priests and the scribes, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. So they know what the wise men could not have known. They didn't need to figure it out. They didn't have questions. As soon as they were asked where God's promised king and savior would come from, they knew the answer was Bethlehem because uh, that's where David the king came from. And that's where the prophet said one day God's future king would come from. Uh, so they have that advantage. They know what others didn't know, but the problem that they had, although they don't play much of a role here, but we find that they are inquirers throughout the rest of the gospels, but, but inquirers who, who are not satisfied with the answers that they're getting throughout the rest of Matthew, the chief priests and the scribes are often arguing with Jesus because they have the scriptures and a conception of how it would be realized. And Jesus somehow isn't fitting their expectations. 
And that, of course, shows that the, 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 the story of the Bible and the story of history is far more complex than they were ready for. But Jesus' arrival was also far more remarkable than they could have understood. And so they had the scriptures that talked about a king, about a time of salvation, about a fulfillment of lineage. They had all of this information. And yet when things were being realized in their midst, it was happening in a far more profound way than they realized. So they didn't recognize it while it was happening in front of them. They came to a, an understanding of what they thought the birth of the king of the Jews would look like. And they looked at Jesus and because he was doing something far more profound, they spent a long time missing it, not understanding it. There was a, um, a comic book that was popular called, or a comic strip called Dick Tracy about a detective in Chicago who was fighting the, the mob and organized crime there. And in the 1940s, um, introduced a, a technological device into the story where Dick Tracy had a watch. And on that watch, he could uh, speak with the police. So if he got captured, he could just speak into his watch where his location was. You know, in the 1940s, this was kind of this remarkable thing to think that you could be wearing something on your wrist and speak to other people. Uh, Tim Cook, the head of Apple, when he was revealing their, the, the, the big reveal of the new piece of technology, the Apple Watch, he said, from the time I was five, I was dreaming of this moment. And is it because he was a young uh, inventor or designer that the assumption is he read Dick Tracy? <laughs> that he was trying to imagine, could you believe a day would come when you'd have a device on your wrist that you could talk to people? But imagine going back to the 1940s and saying, not only can I talk to people, but actually, if I have an irregular heartbeat, my watch will tell me that. And if I'm in a car accident right now, it will automatically call 911 and send them. And, and if you give me any address anywhere in the world, I could put it in. And as I walk, this will vibrate and tell me, make a left turn in 10 feet. There's a calculator in this where I could do advanced math. I could find news everywhere around the globe. The number of things that are happening uh, in this one device so far beyond simply being able to, to talk with people. And yet in the 1940s, that was unimaginable, that you could have a device in your wrist that you could talk to people. How would you tell somebody in the 1940s of what a modern watch could actually do? And so one of the reasons Christmas is good news is God is doing something so, so far bigger than anything we can think or imagine. It's not surprising that when this story begins, the very people who were waiting, who were anticipating, who understood it the most, couldn't grasp it. That Jesus comes and the very people that have all of the information, we know where he was born, we know what kind of family he will come from, we know what he will do, and then Jesus comes and they say, but this doesn't make sense. Um, it's because they did not yet realize that what God was doing was bigger than what they were seeking. They were seeking something far more deep and far more profound. One of the problems we have in our seeking is we think in the inability to get a satisfying answer that we've moved forward rather than gotten off track. We think uh, that, that Christianity is something you mature out of once you realize what the true complex questions are, that, that Christianity feels like a, a, a fairy tale that it encourages maybe people who are weak and need some crutch to hold on to. But once you get to a certain point of intelligence, uh, well, then it just doesn't make sense. The picture of the Bible is actually the opposite. It's, it's God is doing something so profound 
that in your path of seeking, you're going to get to a point where you realize you're at your limit. And then the question is, what do you do? Will you continue to seek? Will you continue to look to God, to his revelation, to watch for what God might show you so that these longings could be satisfied? That's where many of us give up. We think that we've matured beyond it, not realizing um, we're stopping far too soon. Uh, these days, with the deep questions of life, of meaning, of purpose, who do we look to? We look to the intelligent people, the, the people that have the credentials to understand the mysteries of life in some capacity, to explain the mysteries of life elsewhere. And so about 20 years ago, there was a movement of scientists who said, you know, we finally have to figure out uh, how to get society beyond these religious questions. And so there was what, what was described as militant atheism. Figures like Richard Dawkins, a brilliant scientist, who, who so understands uh, science and the innovations he makes there, that then he could read in fields like theology and philosophy and have these great insights. Uh, and then you have Christians who want to respond because we have um, a commitment to wanting to answer for Christianity, and yet Dawkins is so much smarter than many of us, certainly smarter than me. And so how could I be right and him wrong when he's that smart and has those credentials? I happen to be watching online a lecture this week with a colleague uh, of, of uh, a, a, another professor at Oxford University who is not religious, who is teaching science, but was interested, the thing that stood out and interested, uh, there was a reason that I was watching this particular lecture, but in it, he made some pokes at Richard Dawkins, um, not for his views on science, but for his comments on theology and philosophy where he characterized Richard Dawkins as way over his head and not knowing what he's talking about. And here's somebody that isn't trying to uh, hold on to any religious doctrine or dogma. He's not trying to defend Christianity or anything traditional because he himself doesn't believe that. He just says, here's an intelligent guy that completely misunderstands um, uh, the universe and, and, and how it's uh, trying to uh, instruct human beings and how to live in a meaningful way. And so, so you find that, that what was a trap for many people to think, I'm just not smart enough, and if the smart people don't believe it, uh, then who am I to believe this? And we find that actually there's something more profound, something deeper going on that, yes, there are ignorant people that believe Christianity, but there are also very intelligent people who do. That that itself is not the criteria. So we find that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the studied, they were the informed, they were the ones that should have gotten it, and yet, part of the wonder of the Christmas story is that God was doing something even bigger than they could imagine. That's why it's so good. And yet, that's also why they uh, did not continue in their searching. So here's the third part. of Look at the wise men, the chief priests, and the scribes. Here's Herod. Herod, um, he's a different kind of seeker in this passage is a very different characteristic than the wise men or the scribes, the religious people who are genuinely interested but confused, the non-religious Gentiles who are very interested uh, but don't know where to begin. Herod, he winds up wanting to find Jesus as well, but for very different reasons. So in verses three and four, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You read about Herod outside of the Bible. He was a tyrant. He was paranoid. He was violent. If Herod is troubled, everyone is going to be troubled. So he assembles the chief priests and scribes to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. So now you have a number of different people inquiring with the experts 
Where do we find this person? So in verses seven and eight, he summons the wise men. This is a minor word, but probably important in how the story is being told secretly. So it says something he's doing is not on the level. He ascertained from them what time the star appeared, and he sent to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So he looks like one of the other seekers. Something big is happening. I want to be part of this. But we know from the very next passage in Matthew, this is not sincere. He does not want to come and worship the child. He wants to find him and kill him. Herod is seeking Jesus, but in a very different way. Um, Herod does not want to find the one who has been born the king of the Jews. Herod believes he is the king of the Jews. Herod doesn't want to go and offer gifts and worship somebody who's great. He wants everyone to come and worship him because he's so great. He wants the nations to come to him and offer gifts. And so what we're dealing with here is uh, this extreme form of narcissism where Herod's engagement with reality is, I'm the center of all things and I want things to be oriented around me. And if anything's gonna be happening that people declare as wonderful, that doesn't involve me as the center of it, I'm actually angered by it rather than being drawn by it. So Herod is an extreme personality, extreme people exist today. Some people that are so overwhelmed by evil, so self-centered that they will resist anything that's good. But that narcissistic impulse is in all of us to a certain degree. Yeah, we have to look out for ourselves. We have to put our own interests to a certain degree there. But, but we lose connection with reality when we start to insist that everything needs to be organized around ourselves. And so much of that selfish impulse in us creates conflict because the world doesn't conform to us. Everyone doesn't come and bow and worship us. Everyone doesn't come and bring us gifts. And there's a certain joy in going and bringing gifts to others, but when you're self-centered, you miss out on that joy. So for Herod, the announcement that God is finally fulfilling all things is infuriating, not exciting. And it's worth it for our own reflections as we think of ourselves as seekers. To what degree are we seeking after what's good? To what degree are we seeking after what's true and life-giving? To what degree are we sabotaging our own search? because we're out of accord with the truth that there's something in our own self-serving desires that resists good news. And so there's something in this Christmas story to say, on the one hand, maybe it doesn't make sense because it's so big, <laughs> or maybe just this whole religious thing is new and we're not sure what the next step is, but there's always gonna be something in us that resists it because we simply don't wanna believe it, that we think it would be better if that good news wasn't true. And for every one of us, if we're seeking life, if we're seeking meaning, if we're seeking God, if we're seeking fulfillment, is going to have to grapple with the internal resistance that our own pride will convince us that it would be good if this thing that others are claiming is true and valuable were not true. And so it's quite a complex thing to be seeking for God. Here's the fourth party. And this is why the Christmas story is such good news, is because the fourth person who comes in with this theme of seeking is Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, does not have any lines in this scene, even though he's a major figure in Matthew's gospel. But we find that 
that the circumstances around his birth and everything that's happening, who's ultimately in charge? Why are things unfolding as they are? Why are stars shining in the skies in their location where they are? Why are wise men having dreams? Why is all of this coming together? And the picture is that it is God in verse 12, who warns them in the dream, it doesn't say explicitly, but it's God who's protecting Jesus so that Herod wouldn't kill him. Um, the picture here is that all things are being worked by God to lead people. God is the one who is leading the seekers. The people have the desires, but God is the one showing them what the next steps are. But there's an important clue about the role of Jesus in this in verse 6. We're in the fulfillment, their question is, where do we find him? But this tells us something about what they will find. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you go back to the days of Moses. And Moses says, one day you will want a king. But your concept of what a king should be is going to come from the nations. And you will set somebody over yourself that will ruin you and exhibit A as Herod. Herod is just like the kings of the nations, an evil, violent person who's not acting in the interests of his own people. That's what you will be subject to unless um, God raises up a king. And so why is Bethlehem so important in the Christmas story? Well, because David, the great king, he was not perfect. He was a king that was enough like the nations that when he said, I want to build a temple, God said, no, you're not qualified to. You're a man of violence. You're a warrior like the other kings. And yet, David, he was a shepherd. And so he got a lot wrong, but he got a lot right. And so he became the, the type, the protocol that the people who read the scripture said, one day God's going to bring somebody like David. In the same way that Samuel went to Bethlehem, uh, the least of the tribes and the least places, and picked the least son, but he was the one who had the heart for God. We're told one day God will, will raise up a ruler, but what will be the nature of the ruler? He will not dominate our people and destroy our enemies, but he will shepherd our people. This is good news because shepherds protect. They lead. But one of the things Jesus says is they also seek after those who are lost. And that's what we have is a picture of wandering people in the dark, trying to find something to take hold of to make life worth living. Some longing for their desires. And the picture is we're all fumbling around and we can't see it. And so who is the one who is seeking in this passage in a way that he will find? It's not the wise men, it's not described, and it's certainly not Herod. It's Jesus who has come into the world to seek after God's lost and wandering people. And so he's the shepherd who has been raised up to fulfill so that the longings of humanity can be realized because God is going to do for people what they cannot do for themselves. And so the wise men will be led by the stars, by their dreams, by the scriptures, to the one uh, who can give them life. The scribes and the Pharisees uh, and, and the religious leaders um, after Jesus is raised will finally start to see, and somebody like Herod will never see, but Herod needs to be taken out. He needs to be replaced. We need to have that kind of king removed so the right kind of king could be put on the throne. That's the story that's coming together to this complex uh, situation where there are all kinds of people, all kinds of experiences, and somehow God is gathering everyone in Christ into one. And so Matthew then revisits a similar kind of scene in Matthew 27, where once again we have Gentiles and we have chief priests 
and scribes and we have rulers. And this time things unfold with echoes of similar things, but, um, but ultimately much different. It's not a scene of joy, but it's a scene of tragedy where we find that, that the one who comes into the world to shepherd God's people shows that he's the good shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep. So when you get to uh, Matthew 27, the Gentile leader, Pilate, who represents Caesar, the great king, has a question. Are you the king of the Jews? That's his question for him. And Pilate is warned that his wife had a dream. This man is righteous. <laughs> Don't have anything to do with condemning him. And yet there's a similar scene of coming before this one born king of the Jews, but now instead of offering gifts and honoring him, they're mocking him by putting a crown of thorns on his head and nailing him to a cross. And instead of offering what they have of value, they're dividing his garments, they're taking from him. And they put a sign saying, this is the king of the Jews. And now it's meant to, to poke him. And the chief priests and scribes are there and, and they're calling out with mockery as well. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. We'll see if you really are the son of God. Not able yet to discern that the fact that he didn't come down from the cross is what makes him legitimate as the son of God. And then Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, which means my God. And then the skeptical scribes and Pharisees stop for a minute and they say, wait a second. He might be calling for Elijah. They see something in the scriptures. One day Elijah will come before and he's calling out for Elijah. Stop the mockery. Wait and see if Elijah comes. No, it didn't fulfill as they thought, so as they expected, so they were justified in the rejection. He was not the son of God. And then something odd happens. Instead of a light, a star leading people, darkness in the middle of the day comes upon him and the earth shakes. And then a Gentile soldier says, surely this man was the son of God. And then the story changes. The story changes as Jesus is raised and shows that he was the one fulfilling all things by suffering darkness and death for the lost, the hurting, the confused, the condemned. But he experiences that in order that the shepherd would gather and lead them out into life. And so Matthew ends not telling people to come, but telling his people to go, go to all the nations, declare this good news, tell the people that are lost and wandering, tell the people that are confused. Uh, the creator invites them to receive forgiveness, to receive life. And it's a radically different direction of, of, uh, of how things would unfold. Um, all things have not yet been answered, but going back to my feeling around in the bathroom for the light switch, Jesus is sent into the world so that we're told if you're wandering in the dark, trying to make sense of things, all of your questions may not be answered today, but if you know uh, what God has provided so that his light will be in your life, well then, then you'll be fine. Uh, in the early years of Emmanuel, there was a guy that went to our church who was a very committed Christian, but he didn't, as far as my memory, he didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't have a Christian background, but he met a Christian woman. And he became interested in Christianity because that was required of him to continue uh, the relationship of getting to know her. This guy was super bright, super successful, went to the best schools, had a really good job. And so he approached his his seeking of Christianity like he did everything else in life. He asked for the best books making a case for Christianity, best books making a case against Christianity. He read them. He was surprised that Christianity was compelling. 
It made more sense than he realized. It became somewhat attractive. And, and yet there was a disconnect. He was learning about Christianity. He was there, but, but there were things that he didn't like. So for example, the, the need for forgiveness. Here's a guy that everything in his life had gone fairly well. He didn't feel like a bad person that needed forgiveness. So, so what is this message telling me that I need forgiveness? What is this message telling me that I'm lost and need to be found? And so he, he continued with this story, but, but over the months he found that actually the more he was learning, the more he was realizing he wasn't able to grasp it all. He wasn't able to take it all in. He started to get a little bit more frustrated. And it started to become personal where he had all of this information and he had all of these commitments and he could show up at church, but he was having no experience of God. And then he was starting to get frustrated. And that's when it actually shifted to being personal for him. Then he moved into somebody that was seeking about God to somebody who was actually seeking God and then finding he couldn't make it happen. He wasn't in control of it. And so, so that moved him into something like prayer. Uh, not, I'm going to read this book and decide if I like you, but God, if you're there, will you show yourself to me? And he said he went one day to work and he had this really hard day and it was just a, a conflation of all of these things that he left completely demoralized, that he was feeling like he was failing at work, he was failing in his search, he was failing in pursuing this woman who wouldn't date him. And, and he decided for stress relief he was going to go for a run. And so he goes out for a run now with the question, God, are you real? Are you there? Where are you? And, and there was a billboard that he would run by that he never paid attention to, only that it told him he had like one mile left. He looked at the billboard and it was for this movie 20 or so years ago called Hollow Man. Nothing about the movie. I don't even know if the guy saw the movie, but when he saw the billboard, here he was thinking, God, what, how do I make sense of things? What do I do? And there's the sign saying Hollow Man. And all of a sudden he felt he got into an insight into who he fundamentally was. He didn't think he was a terrible human being. He didn't think he was needy. He didn't think he was a failure. He all of a sudden realized, I'm completely empty inside. I'm spending my whole life for things that are trying to satisfy me and nothing's happening. And the thing that I now want most, I can't get. And as he's, he, he sees this billboard as maybe God speaking into his life. And so he goes home with this new revelation. God, I asked a question and here I am realizing I'm a hollow man. What do I do? And so in his running schedule, two or three days later, whenever he runs next, he's running and he's nearing the billboard. Now this billboard is meaningful to him. He's going to look at it to continue to contemplate life, except when he looks at it, they change the billboard. It was no longer an advertisement for the movie Hollow Man. Now the billboard had two phrases on it. Keep pace, find peace. Now, why was that billboard changed? It had nothing to do with him. There's a, a rational explanation of whatever advertisers were trying to do. Here is somebody who had gotten to a point where he felt utterly helpless and frustrated, and he's asking God to speak into his life. And somehow the world is communicating to him now that he's hollow. And yet, if he keeps the pace that he's at, um, he will find what he's looking for. And this is why Christmas is such good news. It, it feels like God has made us to seek what we can never find. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, seek, and you will find. Why? Because he comes and seeks after us. Because when we cannot find him, he could find us. That's why the Christmas message is such good news, is that in wandering, hopeless, desperate people who can't make sense of the complexity of reality, it says, but the fulfillment has begun. God has sent somebody into the world, and if you can fix your eyes on him, 
you will find that he will lead you, he will shepherd you, he will protect you, he will guide you. And therefore, Christmas is good news for us in real time, while we're still confused, while, while we still have questions, while we still can't answer all things. But it says, but if you could see that Jesus has been sent into the world, then if you are seeking, you will find. Um, because the one who you are seeking knows exactly where you are, even if you don't know where he is. That's why Christmas is so hopeful. And so in this season, if you're having a tough time, take the difficulties and look to Jesus. Keep pace. And eventually, he will lead you through it. It requires faith, uh, but that's the Christmas story as the fulfillment began. Um, God has not left us to wander lost, but God has sent Jesus to gather us and lead us. Let's rejoice in that. Let me pray. Our Father, as we're assembled this morning, um, maybe for some of us, another Christmas, another hearing of the Christmas story, and it's gotten old, it's gotten boring, it's not speaking into our lives, and yet there's something here that we need. Lord, maybe some of us um, are just in a season where we're overwhelmed with our confusion or our challenges, and we're having trouble making sense of things, and yet, Lord, maybe we're afraid to admit we still want happiness because we don't want to set our up, ourselves up for disappointment. Uh, Lord, you uh, assemble your people this time of year to remember the hope of Jesus coming into the world and promise that there is joy in that. Somehow, by your spirit, help us to understand the story of scripture again. Help us to understand the world as it's been ordered and help us to understand that Jesus is faithful, that those who seek him will find him um, because he is the one who knows us, who loves us, who pursues and will lead us. Lord, may we have something of joy as we uh, walk with you in this season. Do that work in our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.